If you can open up your Bibles to our reading today, we're in John 10, 31 to 42. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work they were going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. For he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they thought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away across the Jordan to a place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man has come is true. And many believed in him there. Our God and Father, I do want to begin this morning by thanking you for the gift of life. Sophia Grace Lee was born at 5.30 this morning to April and Elijah Lee, and we're just so grateful to you for being a, a God who gives life and a God who allows us to celebrate life together here as a body of Christ. Lord, we're so grateful. We pray that you would be with the Lees. We pray that you would be with little Sophia, and we thank you in advance for the day when we'll get to see her face to face. And Father, we thank you so much for Warren Johnson and Vicki Johnson and their family as Warren prepares to go over to uh, the Philippines for a few months uh, this week. Lord, we're just so grateful for him. Thank you for the sacrifice that their family has made month after month, year after year. They have given so much to, to your ministry here through this church, and we're just so deeply grateful for them. So please be with them as Warren goes. I pray that your grace would be upon him. I pray that your grace would be upon Vicki. I pray that your grace would be upon the whole family. And we thank you again for the privilege of knowing them and of walking with them. And I pray that we would be a good church family to them in this season, Lord. I pray that you would glorify your name by expressing your love for this family through your body. And I thank you, Father, in advance for what you will do. And now, Lord, as we turn our hearts to your word, I pray that you would work in power today. I pray that you would make the words that you spoke almost 2,000 years ago seem as though you're speaking them right now, right here, right in this moment, because the truth of the matter is that your word is living and active because you are living and active. And so I pray that you would come now by the Holy Spirit, and I pray that you would use me, but more so I pray that you would stir in the hearts of every person here, and I pray that you would apply your word to each person in just the way that you have already designed. And by faith, Father, we give you our thanks for what you will do, because you've already promised to use your word every time it goes out. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. If you look back at John chapter 10, verse 24, You'll see that there is a key question that's asked that sort of guides this whole conversation. The Pharisees bring Jesus aside and they ask him a pointed question. Specifically, they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, then tell us plainly. As we saw last week, 
Jesus answered them by saying that he had already told them, but that the problem was they did not believe him. And he pressed beyond their unbelief to say why they did not believe. And he said that the reason they did not believe in him was because they did not belong to him. The Father had granted Jesus a flock, and therefore anyone who is truly belonging to Jesus will hear his voice, and something inside of them will awaken. They may immediately understand that or not. They may be immediately happy about it or not. But one way or the other, when the voice of Jesus hits their ears, something inside their soul awakens, and they begin to stir, and they begin to think, and begin to wrestle with the Lord. And then on the basis of Jesus' perfect knowledge of his own, they eventually turn and they follow Jesus. One of the key marks of the sheep of Christ is that they follow Christ. True sheep follow Jesus, period, and end of story. And to those who follow him by the grace of the Father, Jesus then went on to promise to them eternal life and eternal protection and eternal security. He promised to gather them into one fold so that they would be one flock with one shepherd and enjoy the pasture and the pen of God forever and ever and ever. As awe-inspiring and as gracious as these promises are, these claims are, the implicit question that I think arises in the, in the minds of his hearers and certainly in my mind as I studied these things is this. How in the world can Jesus as a man make such massive claims? How can anyone stand in front of a crowd of people and say that they can guarantee such precious and eternal gifts to them? How is that possible? Well, Jesus addresses that implicit question in verses 29 and 30. He says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I told you last week that if Jesus had stopped at verse 29, he would simply be saying that the root of his promises is in the power of the Father and that the content of his promises was owing to the fact that he had access to the Father. In other words, he would have simply been saying that that he had been sent to the earth as an emissary of God and he could promise such amazing things because he had access to God. But in truth, all the power was there. All the provision was there. All the promises were there. But Jesus did not stop in verse 29. In verse 30, Jesus uttered six simple words that meant he had access to the power of the Father as one to whom that power rightly belonged. He said very simple and profound words, I and the Father are one. I said last week that this is a very precise statement. It's a very profound statement. And by this statement, Jesus both proclaimed his true identity to the Pharisees and, if I can add this, he also guarded the church against two specific heresies at least that would eventually come upon the church and threaten to undo the gospel and in fact the entire ministry of the body of Christ in the world. As for the Pharisees, Jesus' statement clearly meant for them that he was claiming to be equal to God. He was essentially answering their question by saying, I am the Christ. And Pharisees, the Christ is much more than you think he is. I don't think Jesus was saying, I am the Christ and I'm more than the Christ although that, I suppose in many senses that's true. But I think Jesus was saying, I am the Christ, but your perception of the Christ is just so small. 
It's so contracted. It's so shrinked in. Whereas in truth, the conception of the Christ, biblically speaking, is massively, even infinitely expansive. I am the Christ, and the Christ is much more than you think he is. I and the Father are one. That's what he was saying to the Pharisees. As for the church of the future, these six words, I and the Father are one, anticipated and destroyed two famous heresies that came to be known as Sabellianism and Arianism. Now this is going to be a lot to take in. I'm going to dump a lot on you very quickly. So I apologize for that, but I just want to help us see what's happening. And if you're interested, you want to know more about this, please come talk to me later. I'll be glad to slow down a bit and explain it to you in more detail. But I just want us to see the profundity of the things Jesus said and that this conversation was happening at full speed, you know? He's just in a place talking to people. A sentence comes out of his mouth that was incredibly profound. About 200 years after Jesus spoke these words, a man named Sibelius rose up, and he began to teach that God was not eternally three persons, but that God was only one, and that he appeared as Father, he appeared as Son, and he appeared as the Holy Spirit. But this was just a a sort of convenience thing that helped God to accomplish his purposes when those purposes needed to be accomplished. But he denied, thoroughly denied, that God was eternally one God in three persons. This heresy came to be known by his name, and it was called Sabellianism. Later, and to this day, we call it modalism, because the idea is that God is taking on the mode of the Father. He's taking on the mode of the Son, taking on the mode of the Holy Spirit. But again, these are just issues of convenience to accomplish his purposes. But in truth, he's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's just God. He's one God, and that's all there is to it. The group that is propagating this doctrine most in our time and in our country is what we would call Oneness Pentecostals. Have you heard of them? Oneness Pentecostalism, uh, T.D. Jakes, by the way, is one of those. They, they teach this doctrine so that the word oneness simply means that God is one and he's not eternally three. This doctrine, however, cannot be supported by Jesus' words in John 10.30. In fact, his words there destroy this doctrine in two related but distinct ways. First of all, when he chose the verb that he would use, we are, he chose the first person singular verb, which implies that there is an ongoing, in fact, an eternal distinction between God the Father and God the Son, even while there is an eternal relation between them. It would have been awkward at best. But if Jesus wanted to say that I am equal with God and in fact there's no distinction between the Father and me, he would have said something like, I and the Father is one. Or he would have said, I and the Father, I am. Now I know it would have been awkward to say that, but if he was trying to teach that there was actually no distinction between him and the Father, he would have said something like that. But that's not what he said. He he carefully chose his verb. I and the Father, we are. Unity are one. What we is distinction, we are one. Unity. Incredible. Second thing, like modern Romance languages, ancient Greek nouns and adjectives had something, a feature that we call gender. And because of that, there's actually three ways that you can pronounce the word one in Greek. The masculine form of it is heis, the feminine form of it is mia, and the neuter form of it is chen. If Jesus had chosen the masculine word hase, 
If he would have said, I and the Father are ches, he would have been saying that there is no distinction between the Father and the Son and that they are essentially the same person as Sibelius would later come along and say. But instead, he chose the neuter word hen, which meant that there is a distinction between he and the Father, but that there is a profound and eternal unity between he and the Father. And again, I know that dealing with Greek grammar at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning is probably not the favorite thing that you would want to do. But I'm telling you, this small grammatical difference between the masculine one or the neuter one makes all the difference in the world, and it destroys the possibility that Sibelius is right. Jesus is preserving distinction and unity. It's just amazing. It's hard for us to relate because we're so distant in time from it. Just how close this, it came. The church came to being overwhelmed by this doctrine in the third century. Several decades after Sibelius, another man named Arius rose up and he began to teach that Jesus was not God and that he therefore did not share in the essence of God proper. He taught that God the Father first created Jesus and then through Jesus he created all other things. So this puts Jesus in a very unique status with God and even before the host of heaven and everyone on earth as well. But it it demotes him from being God and it makes him simply a created being that the Father is using for a number of purposes. Today, the, the main group in our world that's promoting Arianism is the Jehovah's Witnesses because they teach this as well, that Jesus was created by the Father and that he created other things through the Father. But with them, the case is even worse because they actually teach that, G- that God created the archangel Michael and that the archangel Michael became Jesus on the earth and that after Jesus' earthly life, God recreated the archangel Michael so that today Jesus does not exist. It's the archangel Michael that exists. So, so there's something for you to think about as well. We'll have to get into Jehovah's Witness stuff later. I just want to tell you, what Arius began centuries and centuries ago is still upon us today, this idea that Jesus is not God, but simply a creation of God. But with regard to Arianism, the six simple words Jesus spoke simply will not support his point of view. And in fact, that one little word, hen, destroys his point of view. If Jesus had chosen to use the masculine adjective rather than the neuter adjective, Arius' teaching would have at least been possible. But Jesus made one little tiny word choice that meant he was distinct from the Father and yet eternally enjoyed the essence of the Father. It's amazing to me, beloved, to see how with six simple words that came out of his mouth in the heat of of a live conversation, how Jesus preserved the unity of the Father and the Son. He preserved the distinction between the Father and the Son, and he upheld the common essence, the divine essence that is shared by God the Father and God the Son. And not only that, but in six simple words, he's also addressing the men that are standing right in front of him. It just stuns me, his ability, his wisdom, to be able to speak again in life at full speed and address both present and future enemies with only six words. He's amazing to me. Now I know, again, that was a lot to take in in a short period of time, but I want us to see the depth and richness and complexity and beauty of the speech of God that poured through Christ in those days and still pours through him in these days. The Jews certainly did not understand the depth of what Jesus was saying, but they did understand this, and they understood it clearly. 
that Jesus was making himself equal to God. And because of that, they actually took up stones to stone him right there, either in or near the colonnade of Solomon, which was on the eastern side of the temple, outside the walls of the temple, but actually attached to the temple. You'll remember from another sermon maybe that it was actually illegal for them to kill anybody. The Roman government preserved the right of the death penalty for themselves alone. But these people were so irate with Jesus that they were willing in a a sort of a, a mob justice manner to take his life right there, and they planned to do that. But in great humility, with calmness and without fear, Jesus spoke up to them and said this in verse 32. He said, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now, if you think carefully through the the progress of the conversation, it might look like Jesus is trying to change the subject here from the words that he spoke to the works that he did. But I don't think that's what he was doing at all. I think what he was trying to say is that the words he had just spoken, I and the Father are one, that those words are proven by his works. That's why he makes the change to the issue of his works. Jesus did not come only with eloquent speech. Jesus came in the fullness of the power of God. And of all people in Israel, in fact, of all people on the face of the earth in those days, the Pharisees And the other Jewish leaders should have been able to look to the works of Jesus and listen to the words of Jesus and discern who he was. He had given them every opportunity to see the glory of God manifested, to understand the glory of God explained, and to embrace the glory of God in all all of its beauty, in all of its majesty, in all of its life-giving power. But they did not understand because their hearts were so hard. And so, instead of responding to his words, they insisted that they were not about to kill him for any good work that he did. Rather, they were about to kill him for blasphemy. And and why was that? Because he, as a man, had just made himself out to be God. Now, you might want to note this verse in your Bible here, because there are plenty of people who will say that Jesus actually never made a claim to say that he is God. And right here is a verse where you can go. There are plenty of other places we've seen in John where he has, in fact, claimed that. But this is probably one of the clearest places that needs the least explanation. He spoke words that clearly meant that, and the Jews clearly understood what he was saying. Although they they should have done this, the Pharisees did not see the connection between Jesus' words, Jesus' works, and Jesus' identity before God and men. I, for one, have some compassion that they were a little bit taken aback that somebody would say, I and the Father are one, but... As we have seen for a long time, rather than inquiring of him or or interacting with him, they just decided that they had full grasp of the truth and they pronounced judgment upon him and they were prepared to exact that judgment. They were literally ready to take his life. But rather than pressing further into the issue of his words and works, in other words, rather than, 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 than helping them understand that they were not following his train of thought, Jesus just followed their train of thought And he answered them according to their folly in verses 34 and 36, if you'll look there with me. Is it not written, he said in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Now, this is the second time we've seen Jesus say to the Pharisees the phrase, your law, your law. 
And we have to wonder what that means because he's obviously talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about God's law. So what, what is he implying to them? Well, I said to you before, and, and I still think this is true, that in a sense, God's law had become their law because in many ways their tradition had, had come to overshadow God's law. In many ways, they actually live by their tradition rather than God's law. Here's the tradition, and then they got Bible verses quoted down here in the bottom, but what they're really living by is what had become their tradition. So there is a sense in which that's what he means by your law. But here, I think there's another thing going on. I think here he's simply saying your source of authority. I think he's saying the law with which you were entrusted and by which you claim to live. Your own source of words from God says something that, that's challenging what you're saying to me now. And with that, Jesus quoted Psalm 82, verse 6, the context of which is very important for us to understand what's going on in this conversation. So if you'll please turn with me back to Psalm 82. I want to take a little bit of time with you and work right through Psalm 82 and kind of understand the flow of thought there. And then we'll come back to John 10 and try to understand what Jesus is saying to his opponents in Jerusalem. When you get to Psalm 82, you'll notice that there's an inscription there that it was written by Asaph. Asaph was a Levite who was appointed by King David to be the chief worship leader of the nation of Israel in the days of David and a little bit beyond the days of David. In fact, he was the chief worship leader that helped dedicate the the Temple of Solomon in Jerusalem. So Asaph held a very high position under a God-fearing king, and therefore we should not be surprised that God granted him unusual insight and even prophetic visions of the glory that was to come in Jesus Christ. And so David, or Asaph, in the days of David, writes this. He said, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So the picture here is that somehow or other, God Almighty has entered into his judgment chambers. If we could sort of get a vision of a courtroom, a heavenly courtroom, whatever that would look like, God has now come out from the back, so to speak. He's entered the room and he's ready to be seated, take his position in the divine council and issue judgment. Now, there are, there's some debate about who's being talked about here as to who was actually with him. It says, in the midst of the gods, he hold judge, holds judgment. That can either mean uh, angelic beings, um, spiritual beings, not eternal beings, but spiritual beings like angels, or it can mean the leaders of Israel to whom the law was given. I tend to think that the second option is the case, that he's talking about the leaders of Israel, and in a minute I think you'll see why I think that. But whatever the original vision of this divine council is, in verse 2 it's very clear that God now turns his heart toward earthly leaders and he begins to pronounce judgment upon them. So if you'll look at verse 2, he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Now we don't know for sure what that word selah means, but it usually means stop here and meditate on this. So I'm going to read it again, and let's try to let this sink into our hearts. God, in my view, speaking to the leaders of Israel, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? This rebuke was issued to the authoritative men in the nation of Israel who were not doing the right thing by God or others, much as Isaiah would later come along and say in Isaiah chapter 58. Although they had a righteous king, I think for, especially for those of you who were with us through the journey through First and Second Samuel, 
David had to deal with a lot of very powerful, very dastardly, very wicked people within his own administration. There were plenty of them there during Asaph's days. They were corrupted in their hearts and in their habits, and therefore they would not stand up to wicked people and do the right thing. Rather, these men consistently and persistently gave partiality to the wicked and pretty much delivered to them the so-called justice that they wanted. And why were they partial to the wicked? Well, I think the answer is pretty simple. They benefited from the power of the wicked. Justice, really in any culture, tends to bend toward the powerful because for the most part, the powerful own the people who are meeting out the justice. And so in this way, justice becomes injustice, and such injustice is an affront to the mind and heart of God. For most leaders in any country, they have to have the courage to even lose their lives in order to do what's right. Because in doing what's right, they're coming against people who love what is wrong and who have a tremendous amount of power and resource in that culture. And therefore, God rebuked his appointed shepherds in verse two. And, the, and, and even though this is a general principle among human nations, I think, it's, it's, it's especially tragic that this was the case in Israel because the people he's talking to were appointed to be shepherds of his people for the glory of God and the good of the nation. They were supposed to image God by stewarding his justice on the earth. So it was doubly tragic for these people to be in sin in this particular way. And then look at verses three through four. God goes on to tell them what they should be doing, which is just a reiteration, by the way, of many things he had already said. Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He's not saying to be partial toward these people. That would just be an equal and opposite error. He's just saying do what is right and stand up for those who do not have the power to stand up for themselves. Rather than colluding with the wicked, the shepherds of Israel should have been standing for the needy against the wicked no matter what the cost was. But since they refused to do so, look what Asaph says of them in verse five. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. That reminds me of a saying about Jesus that his throne is founded upon righteousness. And when the throne of any kingdom is not founded upon righteousness, it shakes the foundations of the earth and of that kingdom. Now, if you think about what's being said, especially in verses two and five, doesn't it sound a lot to you like what we've been seeing in the Pharisees and the other leaders of the nation of Israel, even in Jesus' day? We have been seeing so much that the reason they came against Jesus is because they were corrupt and they had power and they saw him as a threat to power. So they're coming against him and they're, they're doing all kinds of things to poor, weak people, like the blind man who was healed. Rather than celebrating the grace of God with him, what'd they do? They grilled him in a court of law. They grilled his parents in a court of law. They grilled him for a second time in a court of law. They tried to take their power and shake this man so that he would testify against Jesus. They were using their power against the weak when they should have stood up for the weak, beloved. They should essentially have been like little gods on the earth. And verse six, I think, helps us understand what that means. I, the Lord, said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Let's make sure we understand what's being said. Notice in, in Hebrew 
poetry. Often they'll have two lines. There's different ways that they'll use the two lines, but one thing that they'll do is make a statement in the first line and explain it in the second line. We call this parallelism. So the second line is actually helping us understand the first line, and I think that's what's happening here. Here, God first calls them sons of God, but then he says that they are sons, or or he calls them gods, but then he says that they're sons of the Most High. So he's not, in calling them gods, saying that they're literally divine beings. He's saying that they are representatives of God on the earth. That their job as judges over the nation of Israel was to image God, to show the world what God is like. Not only the people of Israel, but all the nations of the earth that were looking on as well. They were supposed to be imagers, representers of God, and in this way they were sort of little gods. You know, like uh, the word Christian, you know the word Christian means little Christ. That was first used of us in a pejorative way. People were making fun fun of Christians, saying, well, you're just a little Christ. But the people of God embraced that word, and the reason they did is because we're made in the image of Christ, and in a very real sense, on the earth, we are imagers of Christ. So that's what's being said here. He's not telling them that they're literally divine beings. He's saying that they are his representatives on the earth. However, we see in verse seven that they failed to play their part and they perverted justice and they did not image God and so God gave them the penalty that belongs to any other sinner on the earth. You will just die like men. This doesn't mean that they wouldn't have died otherwise, it just means that they would have died in a different way. Like the Apostle Paul would later say to us believers, he would say, listen, we grieve at death, but we don't grieve without hope. We grieve, we deal with death in a way different from other people because we serve the God of life. And we know that death is not the final word in our lives, so we think about death. We grieve over death in in different ways. That's what he's saying here. They still would have died as human beings, but they would have died with a different kind of a a situation. They would have died with a, a better hope. But their desire was not for God. Their their hearts were not after God. Their hearts were after the things of the earth, and so they used their power to get what they wanted. And you just wonder, as you're meditating upon this, we're now almost to the end of the psalm. It's like, well, then what does this leave us with? Are we just in a totally hopeless situation because the shepherds of Israel will not follow their appointed God? Well, look at Asaph's plea in verse 8. Asaph ends this psalm with the words, arise, O God, you judge the earth, for you shall, future tense, you shall inherit all the nations. Asaph is saying, come, O Lord, and you be the one to execute justice on the earth. You be the one to shepherd your own people. You be the one to punish the wicked according to your own wills and way. Come, O Lord, and you do what the shepherds of Israel would not do and could not do for all the nations of the earth, for all the nations of the earth, and not Israel only, belong to you. So, beloved, when Jesus quotes Psalm 82, verse six, what's he trying to say? And remember again, He's not talking to novices here. He's talking to people who were well-educated, who should have known this stuff backwards and forwards. He's not saying complicated things to uneducated people. He's talking to people who should have been able to follow his train of thought. What's he saying? On the one hand, I think he's making a comparison and simply saying that since the Lord was glad to call his appointed leaders gods in the sense that they were his sons and representatives on the earth, 
Why should Jesus be guilty of blasphemy and worthy of the death penalty when he simply called himself the Son of God, the representative of God upon the earth? Why, when his works had so clearly shown that he was in fact this person, why, when his words had so clearly shown that he was filled with the wisdom of God, why would they want to kill him over the things that he had said and done? But on the other hand, I think Jesus was doing more than just making a comparison. I think that he was urging the Pharisees to ponder his train of thought so that that they would go back to Psalm 82 and consider its logic and realize that Jesus is actually the fulfillment of Asaph's plea in verse 8. When Asaph said, oh God, you rise up and be the shepherd and judge. God answered that prayer. God answered the prayer of the worship leader of Israel who served under King David. Not any, just any old king, but under King David. God answered his prayer and said, yes, oh yes, in my time, I will come to the earth myself and I will judge. So if if you haven't turned back to John already, please turn back there with me now. And notice, having made this quote, having applied it in the way that he applied it, notice what he says right after quoting the psalm. He says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, then believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father, which is just a way of reiterating what he said in verse 30. Now why would Jesus quote a verse where God is calling his own people gods and then immediately return to the issue of his works? Why would he do that? What's the logic here? Was I've prayerfully thought through this. I think Jesus is simply saying that I came to do the works of God for which Asaph pled in verse 8. I came to be the purveyor of justice and of care for the sheep of God in the world. And Jesus had shown this to be true, true through his words, through his works. Jesus had pronounced many righteous judgments, if only they would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Jesus had stood against the wicked for the weak. He had stood for the poor against the rich when that was the right thing to do. Now with this in mind, notice that Jesus invites them to really ponder his life and his way of life. He invites them to reject him if he is not in fact doing the works of God. Isn't that interesting that Jesus himself said that? Listen, if I'm not doing X, Y, and Z, feel free not to believe in me. I find that fascinating that he opened that door. If I have not come and proved the things I have said about my relationship to my Father, feel free not to believe. But then he said, but if I do the works of my Father, not just good things in the earth, a lot of people who do helpful things for other people, Jesus is saying more than that. He said, if I come to do my Father's works with my Father's power, with my Father's wisdom, then if you can't believe in me, at least believe in my works. At least look and see the things I have done. How long has it been since you heard about a person born blind who got healed and can now see? If you're unable to see by yourself, by the means of my words, then please at least, at least believe in my works. Now, I do want to be clear about something here. Jesus is not saying with this that works are more important than words. In certain circles of the evangelical church today, there's a saying that's popular. It says deeds over creeds. It's the emergent church, if you've heard about that whole movement there. They love to emphasize that truth is not important, but good works are what are important. 
Jesus is absolutely not saying deeds over creeds here. He's not saying works over words. You know what he's saying? He's saying that the fruit of my works prove the root of my words. He's saying that if you'll look at what I do and follow the logic of what I'm doing and how I'm doing it, you'll understand what it's all about. You'll understand that a mere man could not do all of these things. You'll come to know the truth and you will know it well that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. You will be persuaded that John 10.30 is true. I and the Father are one. The works of Christ lead to the truth about Christ. The deeds of Christ actually support and strengthen the creeds of Christ. Sadly, the Jews neither heard him nor inquired further of him, but again, it says now that they sought to arrest him, but that clearly means that they were gonna seize him and take him to a place where he could be killed. Maybe they felt like they had enough on him now that they could actually take him to court and get him tried on charges of things that he said. So maybe that's why they didn't take up stones again here at the end of this conversation as they had at the, in, in the middle of it there. But one way or the other, they intended to kill him, but by the grace of the Father, Jesus escaped their grasp. The good shepherd of God's flock evaded the evil intentions of false shepherds, at least for the moment. But one day soon, he was gonna rise up and he was gonna be their judge and they would not, and to this day they have not and they will never escape from him. And with this, beloved, comes to an end the series of debates that happened between Jesus and the Pharisees. You can check me on this. If you go from chapter 11 all the way to the end of the book, you'll see that there are more interactions that happen, but there are no more conversations, it's over. These are the very last things that Jesus said to the Pharisees, and it's the last time that they bothered to try to inquire of him. Now look at verse 40. John tells us there that not only did Jesus escape from the Jews, but he also traveled to the east and crossed over the Jordan River. He went back to the place where John had been baptizing at first and where John had in fact baptized him. And while I don't wanna read too much into this, I do think that this is significant that Jesus departed not only from the temple, he departed not only from the city limits of Jerusalem, but he actually left the borders of the promised land proper. He went into a kind of mini exile, if you will. And you'll see there in your text, John notes that he remained in that place. He returned and remained outside the promised land. The glory had now not only left the temple, but in a sense, the glory for a time had left Israel. But whatever the deeper meaning of Jesus' journey across the Jordan, one thing we do know is that when he got there, he was not alone. As had always been the case, when people heard where he was, they traveled to see him. And John notes that while he was there across the Jordan, many came to him there, and when they found him, they began to muse, they began to think about him and the things they had heard about him. Look at verse 41. John, that is to say, John the Baptist, did no sign. John did no miraculous works, but... Everything that John said about this man was true. And as they pondered the words of John and looked at the works of Jesus, they humbled themselves before Jesus and they came to believe. Beloved, we should not miss what's happening here. There's a dynamic, a, a difference between two groups of people that I think the Lord wants us to see. On the basis of very little information and very little experience, these people across the Jordan humbled themselves and believed in Jesus. Conversely, 
on the basis of a mountain of information and a plethora of experiences with Jesus, the leaders of the Jews hardened their hearts and refused to believe in him. And notice that John says very specifically, in the ESV, I think it's actually the last word of chapter 10, that they believed in him there, which is to say they believed in him outside of the promised land proper, which seems to me to relate back to Jesus' statement in chapter 10, verse 16, when he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I gotta go get them. This was in microcosm, a picture of what was about to explode on a global scene where Jesus was going to leave the hard-hearted Pharisees and fling the message of the gospel into the world with the sure knowledge that when he went to them and preached, they were going to respond to him. They were going to humble themselves before him. They were going to bow down and believe. Some of you, if you were here last week, you might remember Pastor Tony shared with us that when he's going to barber shops and just traveling around the city, he's seeing so many people that are just eagerly hungering after God. And I thought a lot about what he said after the service. And throughout this week, I just could not stop thinking about what he said. And you know why? It's because he is seeing that among immigrants and non-white people in Minnesota, but I'm sure not seeing that among white Christian evangelical people in this state. When I'm out in the rural areas talking to pastors that are working their hearts out, oh, people don't care much about the gospel out there. There's a kind of hardening that's come upon us as a people, but Jesus is still going to the nations and proclaiming his name, and they are believing. There's a bunch of Iranian immigrants that have made their way to Athens, Greece, for some reason, and they're coming to Christ by the dozens I don't know if the statement is fully true, but I recently heard someone say that more Iranians have come to Christ in this generation than in all the history between Jesus and now. That might be an exaggeration, but I hear the points. They're coming. They're hearing the voice of their shepherd, and they're following. Unlike the hard-hearted leaders, so-called shepherds of the flock of God, these people, on very little evidence, hear the voice of Jesus, see a few works of Jesus They humble themselves and believe. This, I believe, was in fulfillment of Jesus' words in John chapter 10 and of ancient words that we saw a few weeks ago from Numbers 27 and Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 and even today, Psalm 82. So in addition uh, to growing in our knowledge about the identity and the purposes of Jesus in the world through John chapter 10 and especially the latter half of it, it seems to me that as we ponder the text before us today, the question that should grip us is this. Will we be more like the hard-hearted Pharisees and reject Jesus, or will will we be more like those people who went out to him east of the Jordan and humbled their hearts before him? Will we be arrogant and push him away, or will we be humble and eager to hear him, eager to follow him wherever he leads us? I said a few weeks ago, and I wanna say it again, that in John John chapter 10, Jesus is revealing himself to us as the good shepherd. And I, I wanna encourage you to think about that for a little bit. We're not just learning a theological point about who Jesus is, we're not just hearing a metaphor that he liked to use about himself, he's trying to reveal himself to us for our everyday life right now as the good shepherd. And as I said a couple weeks ago, he is not simply interested in occupying that position. Rather, he came to lead those who are his. As we see in chapter 10, verse 27, the true sheep of Jesus follow Jesus. 
They don't merely admire him. They don't merely speak well of him, but they actually turn from their ways and they follow him. They listen to his words. His words are louder in their lives than anybody else's words. They seek to understand his will and his ways. And then, by his grace, by his power, they walk in his ways. Anything less than the actual following of Jesus means that a person is either a pretender or a hypocrite or somehow they're deceived into thinking that they know Jesus when they actually don't or perhaps they are a true sheep that is just dangerously wandering away from their good shepherd and from his fold. But one thing is for sure, if we're not actually following Jesus, we can see that as a red flashing signal that says something is wrong. True sheep follow Jesus. So again, will we be more like those who were in Jerusalem or will we be like those who went to Jesus beyond the Jordan? The Lord has surely gathered us today, not just to help us have insight into an ancient text, but to plead with us to follow him. Surely he's here in grace today to persuade us to come behind him. So if you're here today and you're giving yourself to sin and you know it, if you're a wandering, straying sheep and you're hearing the voice of your shepherd today, I wanna tell you the call upon you is to turn from your sin and follow him. Jesus isn't here to play games with you. He's here to cause you to turn back around so that you can come into the pleasant and abundant and soul-satisfying pen and pasture of God. Hear his voice, follow him, friend. If you're living in complacency right now, in laziness right now, Maybe it's not so much that you're actively pursuing sin, but you're just kind of bored with Christ and the things of God, and you're just sort of a couch potato, a spiritual couch potato. Maybe today you would hear the voice of your shepherd saying, arise and follow me, come and follow me. If he's speaking to you right now and urging you to get up off your backside and follow him, then humble yourself and listen to him. Wake up from your slumber. Know that he is for you and not against you. And follow your shepherd. If you're hurting today and in need of some kind of healing today, sometimes people stop following Jesus just because they're in so much pain they don't know what to do. They can't see left and right and up and down. It's just a kind of fog of confusion that comes. And if that's you, I have a lot of compassion for you. I've been through seasons like that in my own life and I think it's in some ways one of the hardest times of life because you want to see straight and you just can't see straight but I want you to know that your shepherd is here today and he knows your pain better than you know your pain. He knows the sources of your hurt better than you know the sources of your hurt. And here's the thing, if you're gonna follow him, I can almost guarantee you that he's gonna lead you in a way that's painful for a while so that you can find healing. My wife loves to use the illustration of if you have a big wound on your arm and you just choose not to do anything about it, it's gonna heal in the wrong way and eventually you're gonna have to open that thing up and it's gonna be painful and nasty and it's not gonna be better than just dealing with it right away. To deal with it right away is still gonna be painful but it's gonna be good. And what I wanna say to you is your shepherd is also your healer and if he's calling you to follow him in the path of healing, please just trust him. It's hard to trust when you're hurting, but I'm here, I think the Lord is using me to plead with you to trust him, humble your heart, follow him from hurt to healing. Some of you may be discouraged today. Maybe you're in need of encouragement. 
our shepherd is the best encourager in the world because he does it by telling the truth. He won't just try to falsely pump you up. He will tell you the truth and he will lead you in the way that you should go. If you're in need of encouragement today, I want to plead with you, listen to your shepherd's voice and follow him in the way that you should go. And when the time is right, you will find yourself tremendously encouraged. Maybe you're doing well today. Maybe things are actually going the right way for you. Maybe you're bearing a lot of fruit in your life. Maybe you're bearing a lot of fruit in the land. Well, if that's you, I want to ask you also to hear your shepherd's voice and receive his affirmation. Last week, I had the privilege of one of my mentors, one of my best friends in the world, Kitty Stokes, stand in front of you all and say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. I didn't ask him to do that. I didn't know he was going to do that. But I'll tell you, the Lord has helped me this week to listen to that and receive it, to receive it into the heart. Sometimes it's harder to receive a compliment than it is to receive a rebuke. And if your father has a, a kind of rightful joy in your obedience to him and he wants to say to you today, well done, my good and faithful servant, my good and faithful sheep, come on, follow me all the more, then do it. Hear his affirmation and go farther in the way. And then maybe there's one more group of people. Dave Fergus talked about this group last week. Maybe God's calling you into something that's scary for you and over your head. You're in a good place with the Lord. The Lord is challenging you to go up another level, to do things that are beyond you, and you just feel scared. You feel like, I can't do this. And if you feel that, you're right. Of course you can't do this. But if he's calling you, I want to encourage you to listen to his voice because he will make you sufficient for the things for which in yourself you are insufficient. Listen to your shepherd's voice and follow him. It's part of faith. It's part of faith. Like you learn to follow when you can't see the end result, and then eventually you come to trust in him. You come to believe in him. Whatever the particulars are of our present walks with the Lord at this time, the main point that I'm trying to make is that Jesus is here to lead us today and not just to teach us a fact about himself. He's here to be our shepherd and not just to be called our shepherd. So let's humble ourselves and listen to him. I can't help but think of that line from Hebrews that the author quotes twice from one of the Psalms. He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, very quickly, some of you may be wondering how you can hear his voice. Maybe you're sitting there saying, I would love to hear his voice and follow him, but I don't get how. Well, it's simple. There's nothing complicated to be said here. Jesus speaks to his people through his word by his living Holy Spirit that belongs to every person who belongs to him. And he does this in the context of and sometimes through his people. He speaks by his word through his spirit in the midst of his people. The reason we don't hear his voice clearly, beloved, is not because it's complicated, it's because we're hard-hearted and we don't listen. And in our day, we're just distracted by 10 million other things. If you wanna hear his voice, draw near to his word, call upon his spirit, gather together with his people, and he will speak. When he's ready, he will speak. And today, or tomorrow, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, but listen. Let me pray now that God will help us with that. Our Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our good shepherd, our great shepherd. We thank you for being the one who not only promises, but delivers eternal life and eternal protection and eternal security. We thank you for being the one who doesn't want to just be called our shepherd, but who actually wants to lead us as a shepherd. And I pray that you come near to us now and help us. I pray that you would help us to ponder the Pharisees and to ponder these people east of the Jordan. And I pray that you would give to us humble hearts that want to hear from you, 
that want to learn from you, that want to feed off of you, that want to follow you. Father, please give us those hearts and please lead us in the way that we should go. I pray that some people in this room right now would look back in a year, five years from now, and say, wow, that time in John chapter 10 changed my life. Jesus grabbed a hold of me and my life changed when we went through John chapter 10. Father, please do powerful things for the glory of your name. And we thank you in advance for all that you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen.